Holy Spirit, we ask that you come today to be with us, that you would empower us, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive what you've prepared for us this morning. As we're going through this book, we're seeing again and again that this is the record of your focused work in the church to glorify Christ. And we want to be a part of that. So would you teach us today? Would you challenge us today? Would you empower us for transformed lives, empowered by you and the effect of the gospel? We thank you that you are working in us and among us, that we would be a good witness to the power of the resurrection of Christ in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and... You remember uh, that Jesus told them before he left that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And the next few chapters that we see are exactly that. Uh, they're a completely Jewish community at this time. And the new church is committed to winning their fellow countrymen to Christ. And we see basically three scenes in, in this initial part of Acts. We see the home fellowships, we see the temple, and we will see the Sanhedrin. You see the home fellowships where they're renewed, the temple where they go for witness, and the uh, Sanhedrin we'll see in chapter 4 where they're giving a defense for what they're saying. Chapter 3 sets the stage for the first bit of opposition the church endures in chapter 4. And that opposition, we'll see, will dog the church throughout the rest of Acts. Um, and for the rest of history. So let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, 
ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And we'll stop there for today. Pretty dramatic. Right? You don't see that on TBN. <laughs> or if you do, <laughs> question it. Uh, what does this remind you of? What does this remind you of? Does this sound familiar? What? It's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? It's very similar to miracles that we saw in the Gospels, where he'd just come over to somebody, grab them by the hand, pull them up, or speak to them, or do something dramatic in public. There are a lot of miracles recounted in Acts, but none of them has a more formal resemblance to what we see in the Gospels with Christ than this one. The only other one that kind of ranks with it is the one of Paul uh, in chapter 14, where he heals a lame man, which we'll get to when we get to chapter 14. But it indicates, again, that the witness of the Holy Spirit of the power of Christ to the Jews was also taken in the same way to the Gentiles. And we see those kinds of themes running through Acts. But what's the difference in these miracles and what we see in the Gospels? What's the, what's the big difference? These guys weren't God, first of all. These guys but weren't God. They were still testifying of God's power. And they're still testifying of God's power. How are, just procedurally, how do, the, how do the miracles of Jesus work and how do the miracles of the apostles work? Well, the miracles of the apostles do the miracle in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They do it in the name of Jesus. Now, we've been in the Old Testament for six years. Uh, what is it, what's the significance about a name in the Bible that we see again and again and again? What is a name? Is it, you know, is a rose by any other name still as sweet? I mean, what is the, what is the significance here? It's intricately tied to personhood. It's intricately tied to personhood. And what else does that entail? Personhood involves what? Their, their life and what they've shown. Their life, what they've shown. How about also their authority and power? If I'm an agent and I come in the name of, you know, Acme, you know, company, uh, Acme Construction Company, I have authority of that company to enter into agreements to do things as an agent for that company. These apostles are doing things in the name of Christ because they're all in. They represent Him. He's given them authority to do this thing. And in effect, well, a lot of the smart guys note, and I, and I think it's a great observation, Jesus' healing ministry is continuing through the apostles. It's His power. It's His authority. They're merely agents of Him doing what He does. Jesus healed by his own authority. Peter, and later Paul will see, healed by the name of Jesus. Jesus' authority at work through his agents, the apostles. All right, let's set the stage. Who are the players here? Because remember, every narrative, we got, we got players in the scene. Peter and John. Peter and John, okay. Peter and John are there. Uh, why, why, why two? Didn't they go out in pairs whenever they went to the cities? Okay, on whose authority? When did they go out in pairs when they went to the cities? 
Jesus told them to. Jesus told them to. Okay, so there's history there of him saying, go out in twos. He sends out the 70. Good. What else do we know about two? Two witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And you need two witnesses to confirm a thing in Jewish law, right? So they're still doing that kind of thing. They are uh, witnessing, uh, and Paul talks about this. The two witnesses confirm the testimony under Jewish law. You see this in 2 Corinthians uh, 13.1. Paul references this. It takes two witnesses to establish a thing, and, and he's pulling it from Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, if you're interested in that. And also Jesus' practice that we see in Luke 10. Where are they going, Peter and John? Where are they going? Up to the temple. Up to the temple. And we, we talked about, when we did our little series on snippets through the Gospels, we talked about that phrase. What does that mean, going up to the temple? Okay, it's in Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, sometimes the temple is lower because it's a hilly place. But they still refer to it going up to the temple. It was an idiom meaning something. We learned about Leviticus as well. What goes on in the temple? Sacrifices. How many? Lots. Lots, but daily how many? Two. Two. Good. Keep, keep counting. It's good. Two. Do you remember? Do you remember? Wow. In, in, in Leviticus, we talked about the daily sacrifices that they made in the morning and the evening of a lamb representing atonement for the people every day. There was a <laughs> what? There was a morning sacrifice and then there was an evening sacrifice. This is about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., which is kind of considered evening. This would be the second sacrifice. All right. Incidentally, those sacrifices would be the time of day where there's the largest gathering of people. So we go to home fellowships for renewal, or the, the intentional gathering of God's people for renewal. They go to the temple, or the tabernacle, yeah, temple, to do witness, the largest gathering. They think it through, right? They go to the largest gathering, and then you see uh, in chapter 4, we'll go to Sanhedrin. But right now, we have Peter and John doing the Jewish thing, going to up to the temple, which is time of prayer, time of reflection, um, uh, the time of sacrifice. And who else do we see? A lame man from birth. A lame man from birth. Now, why is that an interesting piece of information from birth? He has never walked in his life. Literally, it means crippled from his mother's womb. This man's never walked a day in his life. He's never walked. Why is that significant? Because once he is healed, he leaps up and is walking and running. He's never done that in his life. He doesn't have the muscle for it. He doesn't know how to do it, but he does it. There's not a time period of toddler-esque physical therapy. None of that stuff going on. He's lame from birth. This isn't some psychosomatic event that they were able to do some good therapy with him and, and, and get, him, get him up and walking. He's never walked. He's always been lame. 
So when Peter and John get there, this guy is in the process of being carried and placed at the gate to beg for alms because he can't do anything else. He's placed at the gate. What gate? Beautiful gate. Beautiful gate. Now, a couple of, a couple of theories on this. Nobody really knows. That this is the only place that we found that it's referenced as beautiful gate or the gate beautiful, depending on your translation. Uh, Josephus talks about uh, about ten gates that enter into the temple proper area. Nine of them are uh, overlaid with silver and gold. Uh, a tenth one, though, is all Corinthian blond bronze. Ha! <laughs> uh, it's all Corinthian bronze. I'm going to get it right. It's all Corinthian bronze, and it was deemed to be, according to Josephus, too beautiful to cover with silver and gold because it's such great craftsmanship. It was so large that barely 20 men could move it as they open and shut it. So it's a huge gate, very beautiful, not overlaid with silver and gold, the only one of the 10 that was not. Tuck that away. Um, all right. Even so, where is the beggar in location to the evening sacrifice? He's outside. Uh, this gate is also kind of, uh, I think, well, we'll get that in a minute. The, he's outside. Why would he be outside? Well, it's inside more to be like holy and outside. It's like, you know, holy, stay out. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't say he's a sinner. But he's crippled. But he's crippled. Why would that make a difference? No one's carrying him in. What's that? I can't hear Levitical law says something about that, doesn't it? It sure does. Levitical law says that anyone who's not whole... Do you remember many moons ago when we went through Leviticus 21? Wear that with pride. Um, speak to Aaron, God says. You can, yeah, it's fine. Uh, speak to Aaron saying... None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A blind man, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs or crushed te testicles, it's a euphemism for a eunuch, can enter into the temple Levitical law so this man from birth is where separated outside. separated outside he is unable both physically and legally morally to get in to the presence of God to worship to receive atonement you see this is the setup from birth, never accessible to the presence of God. Through the physical requirements of the law, we saw this in Leviticus, God often demonstrates His moral, both His character and, and ours, basically. His perfection and our defection. Uh, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
David's not making a comment on his mother's uh, uh, history. He's talking about his moral standing before God. Uh, in Adam, all die. Uh, Paul would say in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's a word of ability. It cannot. It doesn't because it can't. That's the deal. He can't get in. Doesn't, he can't get in. The lame beggar cannot get to the sacrifice. His legs are functionally dead. He has no ability to move himself in that direction. His friends and family can only carry him so far. But they can't get him to the atonement inside. His total disability makes him unable to walk. His total inability makes him unable to believe. The testimony of Scripture is that we all start here, dead in sin. How can a dead man live? Ephesians 2. How can a dead man live? It's going to take a miracle. So what do we have? Uh, what have we learned about the cultural relationship between beggars and alms givers? Do you remember this? We talked about this a little bit. What's the, what's the society, what's the culture involved here? Wasn't it a, a pat on the back, if you will, if you, were, if you gave gifts to the poor? Like yeah. You, it showed you were kind of an upstanding citizen. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> yes, it, it, is a, it is a demonstration of your piety, right? Yeah. Uh, the the, um, the uh, uh, rabbis at the time talked about three, and they may still, I don't know, the, the three pillars of uh, of Judaism, which were the Torah, the law, uh, worship, being at the temple, worshiping God, and charity. If you're going to do charity, if you're going to demonstrate how awesomely awesome you are and pious, um, gosh, what a great opportunity with the guy who's begging, giving alms right there in front of everybody. And if you're the beggar, what better place to go then when everybody is all feeling pious and they're wanting to show their devotion to God, and that's one of the things, get there when the crowds are there because as they're walking in, they're going to give you money. Right? It's a win-win. Get your crowd when they are most inclined to show charity as they're headed to the temple feeling particularly pious. And he's sitting there saying this over and over again like a broken record. Alms, alms, alms. Just again and again. What do you think the people would do as they go by? If they're feeling particularly pious. Throw some money in there. Just throw some money in there. Just flip a coin, this little hat. Casually. And the response was expected. He would call out something to the effect of, Thank you for your holiness. Thank you for your piety. Oh, you must really... A man among men here. This kind of thing. So it would be seen like, kind of like a righteous act. Oh, absolutely. They would see that as a righteous act. And he would make sure everybody saw it as a righteous act because that's the deal. If you're going to give money, you want, a, you want a little performance. 
But there probably wouldn't be any relationship at all between no. the almsgiver and the one receiving them and no looking at each other or interacting. Right. Right. Other than flipping the coin and hearing your praise, that's basically what you've got. But everybody would know him because he's there all the time. He's they been there. Yeah. I mean, this guy's been lame since birth. So everybody knows he's at the Gate Beautiful. This is the beggar at the Gate Beautiful. And we just flip our coins over there. Typically, someone would casually flip a coin in his direction. He would publicly comment on that person's piety. Did it ever change anything? This money? Did it ever change anything? If it gets enough, he can have a surgery. Yeah. He may, he may be fed for a while. But what happens to the money? You run out. What happens to the food? It wears off. What the world gave him never met the core issue and it was a temporary fix. He'd eat for a while and run out of money again. All that the world could give him was alms, was money. It's all they had to offer. And they were congratulated for this temporary fix. That's piety. That's really all he ever knew or expected. And everything around him told him that that's it. Just temporary relief, temporary pleasure, temporary kindness such as it was. That's all he could expect from the world. What happens here? What does it say Peter does? First. Look at me. What does it say he does first? He did what? He directed his gaze. This wasn't casual. He was engaged immediately when he sees this guy. He directed his gaze. It wasn't, make it go away, I think I'll be calm, I think I'll be kind, I'll just kind of ignore him and maybe he'll leave me alone or whatever. He directed his gaze at this person. Uh, the NASB says he fixed his gaze. The, the, the ASV, 1901, way back, says he fastened his eyes on him. And then, of course, the nearly inspired version says he looked straight at him. Um, he looked outside of himself to the broken man at the gate. I mean, he's shepherding 3,000 people. There's a lot of administrative responsibility. There's a lot going on probably with his own home. There's all kinds of stuff that he needs to be thinking about and probably what he's going to be praying to God about when he gets there. And yet, he gets out of himself and fixes his gaze on this broken man. Ain't nobody got time for that. I mean, broken people are clean. And we'll see that in verse 11. It's messy. He fixes his gaze. And then what does he say? What does he say? Look at us. I'm wondering why it was capitalized at the front of the L. 
I think it's just a... The beginning of Peter's sentence. Yeah, it's just the beginning of the sentence. Look, look at us. Here's a question. Are you prepared to do that as a church? Look at us. Because to make that statement is a lot weightier than just casually gaze in our direction. How is Peter, how are Peter and John going to be different than every other alms giver? And he calls attention to the difference. Look at us. Are we prepared to say that as a church? Can we say with Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ and back it up? Would we rather say, listen to me as I regurgitate what I've heard the celebrity pastor say, but with which I have no connection from the heart? Listen to me as I sound smart or spiritual, but don't look at me. Don't watch how I live my life. Or perhaps we prefer to say, be entertained by me as my pastor comes in on a zip line to the front stage. Or be, mystifi be mystified by me as I have some ecstatic experience. But don't look at me and the life I live. Don't look at me as an agent to get you to the solution for your deepest need. Don't look at me as one who demonstrates the power of the gospel through the holiness of my life. Are we prepared to say, look at me? Look at us. Are we different? For the church to impact a culture, she needs to be prepared to say, look at us and back it up. What's the beggar's response to this? What does he do? He obeys. He obeys. He looks. He looks at them. What is he expecting? What does he expect? He's expecting money. He's expecting to receive something. Probably money. That's all he's ever known. That's all he's ever received. These guys made a point of calling my attention to them. It's not casual. Maybe this is going to be a big haul. Today's my day. They don't look like much, but maybe they got some money. This is going to be my big day, big money, silver and gold. What does Peter say? He says two things in verses 6 through 8. What does he say? <clears throat> he addresses first what? We're <laughs> not doing the money thing. I don't have money. Some have made the observation that perhaps he nodded toward the Corinthian bronze gate that was not overlaid with silver and gold. I don't know. That's kind of a conjecture thing. But here it was, something extraordinarily beautiful that wasn't covered in gold. Uh, some expect the church to bring therapy. Some expect to find a kind of mystic moralism. Some have come to uh, have philosophical discussions. Some have come to make business contacts. 
Some have come for a date. Uh, some think of the church as a nice place. What's the phrase? Uh, where uh, you, you believe uh, moralistic therapeutic the therapeutic deism. What, you, you, let's all be nice because there's a benevolent grandfather upstairs that will make, take care of all of our needs. That's temporary. That's fleeting. That's silver and gold. What does the church offer? The church is here for one purpose. To proclaim transformation through the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's an old story about uh, Thomas Aquinas. He was a medieval um, philosopher, theologian. Uh, the, the story says he was visiting Pope Pius II, which is an interesting name for this pope. Anyway, uh, Pius II, <laughs> which would be an interesting name for any pope. Um, he walks in with his audience with Pope Pius II, <clears throat> and Pope Pius, uh, true to the time, was counting money. Big old bag of cash. He's counting it out. And he looks at Thomas and he says, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold, I have none. To which Thomas replied, true Holy Father, but it can also, uh, never, uh, it, it can also not say, uh, rise up and walk. What are we offering? What is the church offering? Peter commands the man to walk, not in his own power, of which there was none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, of which there is immeasurable power. And in a real sense, Jesus is again continuing his healing ministry through the apostles. So the man feels the effects of this miracle on his ankles, on his, on his feet. And what does he do? What does he do? He gets up and walks where? For the first time. He walks through the gate. How can he do this? He's been made whole. For the first time he enters the temple... For the first time, he is able to participate in the worship of God there. And this is a recurring theme in Acts. You'll see this again and again. People that are marginalized outside the gate are brought in through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see it with this lame beggar. You see it with the eunuch that we'll see, the Ethiopian eunuch we'll see in, uh, in a few chapters. Hence, uh, you, you see it with women. Interesting discussion among reform circles with women. And you see it with Gentiles, of which we are all very grateful. The door to Christ is wide. Uh, interesting thing here. Luke uses a rare Greek word to describe the leaping. And some think that he uses this word because of another uh, of the few times that this word is used is in the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Isaiah uses this word, or the translators of Isaiah use this word in Isaiah 35, 6, where it says, then the, lame then the lame man shall leap like a deer. It's a messianic picture. Same word 
Luke is using the same word as what's used in Isaiah there. So some think he's drawing in that, that imagery of the Messianic era there. Interesting thought there. All right, what's the point of this miracle? What's the point of it? 9 through 11, what's the point? Because Peter uh, was about to preach the word, and this was a uh, confirming point. It was like, a, hey, and then, then he did the real stuff, which is preach the word. Right. Well, it was real to this guy. But, uh, yes, it was to, again, confirm not just that Christ's power is evident, but that Christ's message is transforming. And he is looking toward the audience that's there. What, what, what's the audience's response? What do they say? What are they? Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. They, they're seeing him. They're hearing him. They know him. What's going on? And so they're running. Where are they running, by the way? Where are they coming to? From where to where? It says. Verse 11. The porch that is called Solomon, or Solomon's portico is another, another translation would say it. <clears throat> this is like the east side of the temple. And uh, it would be far from the inner sanctuary. But to get to it from where the sacrifices are done, you've got to go through what's called the court of the Gentiles. So the Jews are coming through the court of the Gentiles to get to where Peter and John are getting ready to preach this sermon. The other players are brought into focus. They are <clears throat> amazed that this lame man from birth is now walking, leaping, praising God. It caused wonder. And they're once again, like on Pentecost, looking for Peter's explanation. And he's happy to give it. So verse 11 is that transition linking the healing to the sermon. Solomon's uh, colonnade is where it's all going to take place, which I also find interesting, Solomon being the wisest king. Anyway, that's probably just conjecture. So some... some uh, some make that observation. He's going across the Gentiles. Jews going across the court of the Gentiles to get to where Peter and John were. And so the scene is set for Peter's sermon. And we'll get to that next week. Takeaways. <laughs> well, at the beginning, we were talking about how uh, Jesus' miracles were different from the apostles. And when Jesus did miracles like this, it was just he did the miracle and then the attention was at him because he is the word. But when the apostles did these miracles, the attention wasn't at him, or at the apostles, but it was at Jesus. And um, it wasn't just, oh, in Jesus' name, you're healed. Now go about your day. Aren't you happy you can walk again? But it, they delivered the word, which Jesus is the word. So without the word, they had nothing. Like, they couldn't present Jesus without scripture. It wasn't just the healing. And, and again, you see them called signs and wonders and those kinds of things. That, that, that phrase, again, used, people are, are wonder about it, points to, the language used points to a deeper meaning in the miracle than just the facts of the miracle. It points to who is Christ, his power, and again, calls for an explanation that we'll see next week in the sermon. Go ahead. Uh, one takeaway is that 
because Christ loves them and they are a part of his kingdom. Clearly he cares for them. Mm. So we need to as well. But there's a distinction there too. You're right, that's part of it. The distinction is the gospel. Because, I mean, one of the pillars of Islam is give alms. It's also just like uh, a lot of the times I work at Walmart and then when around the time of the day, you know, it begins to get cool again, um, you always see like, you know, a homeless person with mm. a sign and then, you know, the person in the car, you know, stops and then gives money or even I've did it before. I just give them money and I go on my way. Mm. I don't stop and try to ask them anything about how did you get here or about their lives. Mm. I just, no, you need money, here you go. And that goes back to Peter fixing his gaze on the guy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and communicating, look at us. Right. Being involved in lives that we wouldn't otherwise be involved in for the purpose of um, sharing <laughs> restoration through the gospel. From a real practical standpoint, actually, our class has signed up once a month. It's not necessarily homeless people, mm -hmm. but for the food pantry, mm -hmm. people that, that are at a point in their life where they really do need physical help, but in that context, there's also a great opportunity to share um, mm -hmm. the love and the truth of Christ with them. Right. And so that, I mean, that's something that's right here at our church that... That you can be involved in. Can be put right. Into practice. And that we have a connection with even in this class to be able to do that. Yeah. And it's not just about filling stomachs. It's about, I mean, there's a time set aside in each of those sessions to share the gospel. That's the, that's the point of it. Fill the stomach, fill the soul, I don't know, some kind of phrase. Yeah, and it's easy to read this first section and just kind of take it out of context. But like, oh, well, you healed lame people. That's the gospel. We need to go be doing that. Um, because the reason that they did that was to confirm Scripture, which hadn't, which hadn't been written yet. But now that we have the Word, like that's what we have to offer people. Right, and, and, and demonstrate that through lives that are transformed by the Word. Right. It, it's easy just to, to, you know, read commentaries, read magazines, listen to sermons, do the, do the theology thing, and not also be vulnerable to uh, accountability, to correction, to um, live a life that mirrors what we read and what we're hearing in the gospel. Um, we, can, we can easily point to charlatans that are going to Africa and doing these crazy things and promising these people have nothing but a light bulb in their huts that if they give more money, they'll, they'll, God will give them uh, blessings from heaven that there's not room enough to receive and all this kind of stuff and twist scripture that way. It's easy to point at those guys and call them charlatans. We've got to be real careful about being charlatans ourselves with the knowledge that we have. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look at us. Are we prepared to do that? That's the thing that just hit me this week going through this. He calls out to the guy, examine us, look at us. And he's prepared to back it up with the power of the gospel that transforms this guy from being lame at birth.
to someone who is now before God accepted legally, morally, and we'll see eventually uh, he becomes a believer. So there is a, there's a clear testimony here of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what is he called on this guy to do through this miracle. It's not about the miracle. It's about getting the guy to Christ. And part of that is, look at how it's transformed us. We're not coming at this from a detached uh, knowledge, intellectual only kind of thing. They're engaged. They're engaged. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, kind of a question. Uh, he can't, the lame man can't get into the temple to be atoned for and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, would it be a stretch to say that this is kind of a picture of God can save people that we wouldn't think are savable? I, I think that's a great observation. Yeah, I think it's a great observation. This guy has no hope, right? Yeah. It's the picture of the whole gospel. Mm -hmm. Because we're all lame, we're, we're, we're all Gentiles, and we, we have, we're without hope, without God in the world. Mm -hmm. And He comes and makes the drastic change in our lives. So you have Ephesians 2, we're all dead in trespasses and sins, living our lives from that, standpoint, dead in Adam. And then God makes us alive together with Christ through he's grace. And He's rich in mercy. And here you see that mercy displayed through the apostles to their And He continues to be merciful. And the power continues. Because one of the things Paul prays in chapter 1 is that you may know the immeasurable power of the resurrection at working your life. I'm paraphrasing. But that's what he's, he's one of the prayers. It doesn't stop here for this guy. It doesn't stop by getting him into the, the temple. It continues through the transformation, continues through the application, the, the, the understanding, the love of Christ, the fellowship with the saints, the hearing of the word, the praying, dependence on God, those means of grace we talked about last time. It continues. It doesn't just stop with, great, I'm through the gate. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. He he did he did have his hand up. I was, I was just gonna I was gonna make another application, another reference is Christ said this was gonna happen. He said that they would perform miracles mm -hmm. in His name, and that just proves that He is trustworthy and that He's faithful. Mm -hmm. So we need to trust Him and have faith in Him. Sure. Good. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, one thing that I've I've come to notice, like uh, reading the Bible, is like a bit hard for me. And it's, uh, I, um, uh, watched, uh, like, who's seen God's Not Dead too? Have y'all seen it? Okay. Well, uh, on there it showed, what, what is his name? Jay, Jay Wallace? Jay Warner Wallace? I can't remember. But basically he, uh, he said that he became a Christian, not because of some feeling or because of some hardship that he went through, but because he actually looked at it from, um, because he's a homicide detective. He looked at the gospel mm. in Christianity at a homicide detective's, you know, point of view, it like looking at an actual crime. Mm -hmm. And he found that it was true. And he wanted to, you know, disprove it. Mm. And um, it, it's just that uh, 
how he says it and I wonder like what you think about it he says that so much it's easy for us to say you know I went you know I'm a Christian because I went through this or I experienced this but it's a whole different other thing when you have someone coming at you like uh kind of like uh with animosity like mm -hmm. they're like well you know you talk you have conversations with God well not everybody else can do that mm -hmm. or, you know something like that uh his thing was like you have to learn to make your case mm -hmm. for uh for you being a Christian yeah like how, how do you how do you feel about that well I the Bible says uh, that always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. Right. And the defense is not based on my feeling. The defense is based on... But see, and a, and a lot of the times, what uh, my thing is, like, what happens to those who, you know, are just becoming Christians, mm -hmm. and they're, they're hitting walls with people because they're like, oh, well, do you know the answer to this and that? Yeah. And they're just like, you know, I, yeah. I don't... Uh, and and no. and here's a, let me give you let me give you a gold nugget that I learned late 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 in life after many many um, regretful tears. Uh, it's not up to us to convert people. Mm -hmm. We can't reach in and flip the switch. That's one of the things that we see in Acts again and again and again. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that moves and transforms the heart. It's not up to us. What we're called to do is be faithful. Christ lived. Christ died. He rose again, and he's calling, commanding, not just inviting, commanding all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Now, and as you go, as you, as you grow, mm -hmm. you learn how to do that in a way that challenges people who are hostile, right? By not being hostile yourself, obviously. Right. But there, there uh, and we could talk about this later if you want to, but there's, a, there's a, some great... There's some great books out there on engaging people, not in, you know, pounding your fist, mm -hmm. but in asking very simple questions. And make them make a defense for whatever hope that's in them. Right, right. And let's see how big that hope is. Because if, if everything is, most of the hostile people that I've, that I've run into, at least in our culture, are, are people that deny that God exists at all. Mm -hmm. And so make them give an account for how time, matter, and chance gives them hope. Mm -hmm. How I've been seeing lately is just how the world is going is uh, evil. Mm -hmm. Like all these different things happening, people dying, mm -hmm. and uh, just like a lot of hatred and anger. That's all I see mm -hmm. like, lately, and that and that's like the center of a lot of you mm -hmm. know a lot of people's arguments I see. And it's like you know we're praying, but yet nothing's changing. Mm -hmm. The same things keep happening, and now it's becoming worse. If an atheist so, asks me about God and evil. I will often say to them, what do you mean evil? Hmm. Who are you to talk about evil? Right. What, on what basis do you judge evil? Time, matter, most enchant. The universe doesn't care. Right. It, I learned that too, and I, I never really thought of that, but like, it's the same of how we, how somehow we, um, like we can create uh, something is worse than this, mm. or you know, this is considered bad, like how, uh, Say like murder is you know so far up here, mm. but then you have uh, molestation here, mm. and then you know just this these categories of mm. what you know like how something is worse than the others. Like where where do we even get that from? Well, I mean that we can talk about but criminal no, criminal no, law no, and culture and all that another time. But 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 yeah. <laughs> but that, but how do how do they make that determine what what are they grounded in? Right. Is 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 even more than 
And I appreciate the guys that do the criminal investigation of the cross. I think that's great work. But I think where it comes down to, even, even, if, even, if, somebody, even if somebody were to raise from the dead mm -hmm. in front of atheists, they'd come up with a phys physiological right. Right. explanation for how that could happen. Which is what they did with Lazarus. And then they sought to kill Jesus and Lazarus because Lazarus. I mean, so evidences are there. That's great. But it comes down to the mind of the flesh mm -hmm. will not obey the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. We come from a standpoint of no matter how much evidence there is, we're going to reject the authority of God over our lives. Just like the lame man. Just like the lame man would. But for the grace of God, but for his transforming power of of, of a renewed heart that's going to happen and so we're called not to we can't transform the heart I can't do it um, but we're called to be faithful to the witness in hopes that God does what only he can do so if we're dealing with difficult family members if we're dealing with difficult people at school if we're dealing with employees or whatever or, you know fellow co-workers whatever we just be faithful look at us see the lives we're living and be faithful about that and then be faithful in he lived he died he rose. He commands everyone to repent and believe the gospel. He is sitting on a throne. He will come to judge, but this is the time for mercy. Flee to the cross. That, that's our message. That's, that's really it. <laughs> it doesn't get any more fancy than that. There are a lot of things in that. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of implications of that that we draw from. But it really comes down to Christ lived, died, rose, and he's sitting on a throne. He's coming back. Are you ready? I mean, that, that's, that's it. So, anyway, any other comments? Good. It is now 10.05, and it, I am already in uh, violation of the mandate. So, I'm going to pray, and we will move on. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that you have swept us up into this great plan of yours to redeem a people for yourself, to make a people that reflect your Son. We want to be faithful to that. God, would you give us hearts that are zealous to say, look at us as we imitate Christ. I don't want to say that. I, even now I'm thinking of areas of my own heart that I would be embarrassed to have that kind of gaze. Would you forgive us, renew us, and transform us continually into the image of your Son? Make us holy as you have declared us holy in Him. Thank you for His grace, that His mercy is new every morning, and that we know that you love us as you love your own Son. And in loving us, would you make us look like Him? so that we can be faithful witnesses to the transforming power of the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.